Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Judd Brewer is an internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist. He's an associate professor in the School of Public Health and Medical School at Brown University. It's an honor to have him back on the show to discuss his latest must-read book titled Unwinding Anxiety. New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Judd, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So we had you on the show literally a year ago. You were one of the last people to do an in-person podcast interview in the Mind Body Green studio just before the pandemic. We filmed you in February late February, released it in March. And so a lot has changed and a lot's changed for the worse in terms of anxiety, which is what we're going to talk about. So could you provide a little bit of a state of the union, if you will, of where we are in terms of anxiety and compare it to where we were pre-COVID a year ago? You start the book off, which is titled Unwinding Anxiety. Everyone should pick it up. It's a fantastic read. But you start, off, you start off the book with, with some numbers that are eye-opening, to say the least. So take it from there. Fill us in. What's the State of the Union when it comes to anxiety in March 2021 compared to March, early March 2020, pre-COVID? Yeah. So I like that. BC, before COVID, seems like it was such a long time ago. It really seems like ancient times. So I like this idea of like what was like BC before coronavirus and what we were seeing was a large uh, increase already in anxiety in the mostly in the united states was where i've looked but probably across the world as well so that that anxiety had been creeping up already and then we saw a huge spike in the last year just to give you a couple of examples psychological distress for example went up 250 percent between 2019 and 2020 people screening positive for anxiety disorders. So just screening positive, 287% increase in one year. So those are just a couple of these examples. I saw recently, I think it was one in five people who's had COVID gets diagnosed, newly diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder, and the majority of those are anxiety disorders. That's 20% of people that just had COVID. So just think of all the people that have had COVID, take 20% of them, and they're getting a new diagnosis of some psychiatric disorder. And for me, a number that just sticks out in my head, this past summer, the CDC put out a number where I think it was one in four young adults, age 18 to 24, or 18 to 25, strongly considered suicide. So Mm. it's tough. I, I, I am a hope guy. I'm an optimist. So I do think there's light at the end of the tunnel. But I am curious, on a personal level, how have you been getting through this year? How have you been coping? Well, uh, thank you for asking. These are, let's say, these are challenging times for all of us. And certainly I'm at a position where I've got good healthcare and, and things like that. So I'm probably doing better than many people. But I would have to say it's really, you know, it's been a real challenge. And some of this has prompted me to look at you know, a lot of the stuff that I wrote in my book around, we, we're in our comfort zones. You know, the world was kind of in a comfort zone. 
And then we were forced out of our comfort zone. And so how do we deal with that? Do we go into our panic zone? Do we freak out because it's just too uncomfortable? There's too much uncertainty and run back to the safety of the cave. Or can we actually learn to lean into that and move into our growth zones? So I've, as much as possible, I've been trying to lean into this, all this uncertainty, all that's happening to see one, how I can be of service as a physician, as a psychiatrist, but also to see well, here it is. Can I actually grow from this? Uh, because there's nothing I can do to make it go away. So you mentioned leaning in, into uncertainty and, and these are unprecedented times and there is a lot of uncertainty. And on one hand, you need to monitor your news consumption, but you need to stay you need to stay you know, alert. You need to stay informed. There are a lot of important issues, whether it's COVID, politics, world issues. There's a lot happening in the world. And so you can't just completely tune out the news and say like, ah, the news is terrible. I'm not going to watch it. Then you know, that leads to ignorance. So you need to stay informed. But you know, the news can be depressing. The news is a Debbie Downer. And not to go down this rabbit hole of mainstream media, but <laughs> I would say a real criticism of the mainstream media is they, they kind of fear drives ratings. And so yeah. how do you, you know, in leaning into uncertainty, you, know, you got to stay informed. How do you lean in to the news so it doesn't affect your mental health? You got to stay informed. But, you know, I, I, had a, I had a, there's a line I'll never forget. This is pre-pandemic. Peter Tunney, the, the artist who's a friend who's, who's had addiction issues and, and mental health is a big concern. He said to me years ago, he said, if you put a five-year-old in front of the Weather Channel for, for an hour, they're, they're getting ready to board up the windows because there's a hurricane <laughs> coming. <laughs> and if I think about our news cycle, it's just symbolic of, oh my God, you spend an hour on any of these news networks, you're ready to just call it a day. So long-winded uh, question, but what do we do? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that. And I use this analogy in the Unwinding Anxiety book around helping us understand what our ancient ancestors were doing, because these are our survival brains uh, trying to really help us survive. And I'm glad you mentioned the term fear, because fear is actually a really helpful survival mechanism, right? Our brains, and we've taught you and I've talked about this before, you know, brains are set up basically to, to eat and not be eaten, right? So that fear survival mechanism is really helpful. Yet with our, you can think of our stomachs, they rumble when we're hungry, alerting us that we need calories and then getting us off the couch to the kitchen to go get some food. You can think of uh, uncertainty as creating that rumbling in our brain. And information is food for our brain. It helps us survive by thinking and planning in, in, into the future based on past experiences. So here, what I say to people is information is helpful but look to see how your brain works to see how it might be getting caught up in information versus actually being able to digest it. Are you biting off too much? So there's a ton of information out there. And if, we're, if we just run around thinking, I need to get all the information I can possibly get, that may not actually help us survive. I'll give you a concrete example of this. I was talking to somebody who said we had to buy pillows and, my, and we started thinking we should look up pillow ratings on, on the internet. And then he's like, wait, these are pillows. We'll probably survive if we just go to the store and buy some pillows rather than spend a day trying to find the perfect pillow, right? So there's an example of, there's way too much information out there about pillows as an example, but we don't need to get it all because pillows are, they're not gonna eat us. We're not gonna suffocate. Generally pillows are safe. So just go buy a freaking pillow. So there's an example of when we just 
our brain is saying consume information because it's going to help you survive without looking to see is there a diminishing return here? Do I really need to spend a week researching pillows or can I just go to the store and touch a few? God forbid, actually go and touch the pillows and then see, oh, that's good enough. Let's go buy it. So that's one piece. The other piece is seeing where it is that if we go to get news, is it actually helping us with what we need to do? So, for example, you've probably seen this. People checking the, their news feeds before they go to bed. Guess what? It doesn't help them sleep very well. <laughs> so when we check the news is important, right? Maybe check once or twice a day. Don't check before bed. But how we consume news is also very important. So those are just a couple of things. So I'm curious in our personal level, how, how is media consumption changed for you? And what do you generally, do you have any rules or a media diet to prescribe, if you will, for people who are trying to struggle with the balance of, I got to stay informed, but I can't let the news ruin my mental health? Yeah. I used to have a media diet. This was back in residency when I really didn't understand how my mind worked very much. And I would limit myself, when, especially when I was trying, trying to procrastinate from writing a paper or something like that. I would I would have to force myself to only check the new it was the New York Times at the time only check that twice a day because otherwise I would just be constantly clicking for new information which rarely came. So I found that the prescribed news diet didn't work and now I know why. So it's relies on this willpower part of our brains the weakest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective it goes offline when we get stressed or anxious so it's really hard to regulate ourselves and this is we see this it parallels or mirrors the diet industry where everybody's got a, the newest yo-yo diet where they do something it works well and then it stops working and then they try something else and then it works so i hear focus on like really helping myself uh, understand again it goes back to understanding how our minds work where, what I look to see is what, where is there a, a diminishing return? Where do I, where is it actually more harmful than helpful? And I'll give you an example. My lab has actually done research on this. The only way to change this, or any habit really, is through awareness. And I write a lot about this in the new book. It has to do with reward value. If something's rewarding, we will keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we will stop doing it. That's why it's called rewards-based learning. So one thing I do is I ask myself, okay, when's the last time I checked the news? Do I really need to check it again? Or is it because I'm bored or restless or something else? And then if I just take a moment to check in and realize, oh, the news isn't gonna help me here. I need food. I need to check in with my wife. I need to do this or that. I can get my needs met simply by paying attention and not forcing myself to say, oh, you've already checked the news twice today, no more. Does that make sense? It does, it does. And this is a little off topic, but I'll mention it because it was somewhat helpful in terms of, you mentioned awareness to, to, to our awareness, speak to Colleen and I, is something we did around the election was we would watch the right and the left, if you will. So we would watch, mm -hmm. you know, I'll give you a real, we would watch Rachel Maddow, and we would watch Sean Hannity just to see and try to understand and like okay yeah, yeah. like as a country look i don't no matter where you stand on the political spectrum i think we could all agree we're pretty divided so our goal was just to kind of understand where what, what's being what news is being what news is out there what people are saying and maybe help, help us understand the divide that's going in the country and like educate ourselves i think part of the problem with news is confirmation bias and we tend to pay attention to the news that serves us or serves our belief systems. And that just, that's unproductive in some degree, but okay, we'll get off the news. So I want to go back to, we get news. So many of us get news. You mentioned at night, I think of the smartphone. 
And so mm-hmm. how do we do a better job managing our smartphone? And in my mind, we, we've moved to a world that for most people is largely remote, where my mm-hmm. guess is screen, screen time is through the roof compared to where it was last year. So how do we do a better job in managing our smartphone? I would say I would use a parallel approach to or the, even the same approach to what we talked about with the news. So with our phones, I think you know, where there's this great saying, these weapons of mass distraction. I think it was Cornell West that I heard that from first. So these weapons of mass distraction, if we don't understand that we basically have slot machines in our pockets, we're not going to be able to regulate ourselves in terms of the smartphones. So here I teach a class at, at Brown where this, I, in one of the classes I have the students pay attention to one of their own habits and a lot of them will use their smartphones and so they'll start tracking to see how much time they're spending on their smartphone. And so the key here is really starting to map out these habit patterns, like what triggers me to use the smartphone? What am I going onto my phone for and what am I getting from it? In fact, this is so simple. We created a free habit mapper. It's, I think it's just mapmyhabit.com. Anybody can start using that as a way to start mapping these things out. So if it's with phones, I would have somebody start with, okay, I'm on my phone again. What triggered that? Trace it back and then trace it forward. What am I getting from this? What is this leading to? And my students, you know, these are very social kids. They're realizing that they're not spending as much time with their friends as they could be because they're spending all this time on their phones. And so that in itself, just seeing that like, oh, what am I doing? Help them start to become disenchanted with being sucked into their phones all the time. And then they did this radical thing, which, which was to put their phones away and spend more time like face to face with their friends. So you just have this great line, or maybe it was Cornell West, I don't know who, could, who takes credit, but the slot machine in your pocket. And so where my head goes is addiction. And you say addiction is, is everywhere. And so like when I think of addiction, most people think of addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex. What are some of the, what are some under the radar addictions? Yes, I like the simple definition of addiction being continued use despite adverse consequences. I learned that in residency training and it served me well in my clinic because it goes way beyond cocaine, all this stuff that you're talking about. It goes to, oh, checking social media despite continued use of social media despite adverse consequences. It doesn't say that social media is bad. It just says, what are, when does it become to the point where it's adverse consequences. Online shopping, gaming, that's an obvious one. That's even uh, now considered in the realm of addiction. There could be all sorts of things where we are just continuing to do these X, Y, and Z things despite adverse consequences. So is it a fine line? How do we know when that line is crossed? And like, is there such a thing as somewhat of a healthy addiction? Great question. The only healthy addictions that I've been able to identify, and maybe we can talk about this later, is things like curiosity and kindness. So things that are not actually driven in a way that are dopaminergic, that are kind of contracted, uh, restless. This is, I have to do this. When somebody's curious about something, it's more of an open feeling where they're just exploring. They have no destination in mind. Whereas addiction is about go get me X, whether it's food or cigarette or anything else. So can so can being healthy? I, I think orthorexia term is a term that we're familiar with here. People becoming addicted to being well to being healthy. Can you talk a little bit about what when what's the line that's crossed there? Yeah, it's a, that's a great example because it's not like healthy food is bad for us. Healthy food is healthy for us. 
But when we start limiting, where it starts affecting our personal lives, our social lives, our relationships, where it actually starts causing adverse consequences, and these could happen anywhere, this is where we can be so caught up in X that it is causing problems. I'll give a personal example. Uh, exercise, right? Good thing. I hadn't realized that when I was in college, I was basically addicted to exercise. So I would plan my days around when I could go for a run. If I went home for a vacation, like at the holidays, I would have to make sure my family, when they knew, oh, Judd's got to make sure he's got his run in today or he'll be irritable and all these things. So I could tick off all the criteria for addiction related to running. I would spend a lot of time thinking about it. I would you know, spend a lot of time doing it, all these things. So there's an example, just like orthorexia, if we spend all of our entire life trying to be healthy, yet it is making us stressed out and making our relationships stressed out, we're defeating the whole purpose. It's interesting, it reminds me of, and I'm a tracker guy. I've got my Aura, I've got my Fitbit, I've got my Whoop, and I love the data. I just, I love it. But I also have fun with it. And the big question, I think education and information are paramount with regards mm -hmm. to understanding what works for you, what works for your body, how do I respond? I've worn the glucose monitor from levels. And so I, I love all that stuff. You get an understanding yeah. of what works and that's part of the process. But I also think for many people, it becomes TMI. Yeah. And so information is empowering, but at a certain point it can be detrimental. Absolutely. And there's a law named after somebody that I've forgotten. It's like good somebody's law or something like this, where he basically says when the target becomes, uh, when the measurement becomes the target, then all everything is wrong. And so oh. the typical example there is when the measurement becomes the target. So it's like, I got to get my uh, 10,000 steps in, right? There was That's me that. like every day. People are basically walking around in circles in their apartments late at night just to get their 10,000 steps in when it really doesn't improve their, their health to get those extra, you know, 214 steps in, right? But they're just like, I got to complete my 10,000 thing. I've totally done that. I've totally done <laughs> that i've totally done that guilty as charged judge guilty as charged so, so just remember that law when the measurement becomes the outcome that's when we it that's when it's time to step back and ask ourselves why am i walking around in a circle late at night you know is this actually improving my health or am i just am i that rat looking for that next little treat so so a much different quote than uh, i think it's bob weir grateful dead too much of everything is just enough very uh <laughs> <laughs> Very different. So on that note, I just want one more question on wellness and I'm going to come back to the big question of anxiety. So I'll give you a real world example in wellness. And I think this happens to a lot of people and I think it ha happens a lot now. So you don't feel, you say this in the book, Dr. Google, you go to Dr. Google, you don't feel well, you go to Dr. Google, you start Googling and then holy cow, next thing the spiral ensues, you're ready to go to the ER, you're ready to call your parents and say you love them, I'm not gonna be around tomorrow. It just goes to a very dark place quickly. And so walk us through that situation when we're alone with our thoughts and Dr. Google, and we start yeah. to spiral. What do you do and, and not do when like you're just not feeling well and you go to right. Dr. Google? Right. Right. Well, this guy, I love that. So this goes back to our basic survival brains, right? And what our brains are set up to do is if there's something uncomfortable, our brains interpret that as dangerous. And we, our brains say, make that go away as quickly as possible. The reflex is we touch a hot stove and we pull our hand away. We don't have to just sit there and go, is there something burning? What's burning? Oh, that's my skin. We just pull our hand away. 
So the key here is really understanding that process and seeing that process, right? And so we go, we have something that we, and often I see this in my clinic where somebody says, oh, I felt something that was unusual, something that they hadn't felt before. So this goes to the uh, discomfort of something that is unfamiliar, right? This is about uncertainty. Oh, if I typically clench my jaw or have a tension headache, then I'm like, okay, it's another tension headache. I don't need to go to Dr. Google. But if I feel something unusual in my body, my brain says, oh, that could be the big one. Maybe you're really having that heart attack that you hear about on the news when they're trying to give people public service announcements, but they're freaking everybody out. So it's like, oh, I feel this, this pain in my chest. And I'm using an example specifically from panic because panic sends a ton of people to the emergency room. When they've had their first panic attack, they really feel like they're dying. When I've had panic attacks myself, I really felt like I was dying. Okay, fortunately I was in residency training and, and I could go, oh, boom, that's a panic attack. That's not a heart attack. So I didn't have to go to the emergency room. So, so residency training wasn't literally killing you. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was the slow burn. <laughs> it wasn't the chop your head off, but yes. <laughs> uh, so there, it's really seeing, okay, here's something unusual, right? Can I... And when we totally start freaking out about something and we go on Dr. Google and then it says, oh, you could be having a heart attack, go to the emergency room, stop Googling. Then we really freak out and we move from anxiety over something that's uncertain into panic, which is literally wildly unthinking behavior. And that's where a huge amount of people end up in the emergency room. So what we can do about that is, like you're saying, information is useful. We can, but we have to keep our thinking and planning brains online. Right. And so this is where fear comes in. Right. When there's fear plus uncertainty, we get anxiety. When anxiety just you throw gasoline on that fire, you get panic. When we're panicked, we cannot think. That's where the wildly unthinking behavior comes from. So when we are panicking, we're more likely to do something that's going to send us to the emergency room. Yet if we can see, oh, here's the process of my mind. Here's uncertainty. I'm looking up information. Am I actually getting information that I can absorb, that I can digest, or am I starting to freak out? And at those moments when we're starting to freak out, we can do something to calm ourselves, like close the laptop, take some deep breaths. I love this. There's a five finger breathing practice that I talk about in the book. And I also have a YouTube video. Folks can look that up. But there are ways to help us, like help our thinking brain come back online so that then we can go check in with ourselves in five minutes, right? check to see, is this still persistent? Go back and check to see, do we really need to go to the doctor or call the doctor or what? Do, go to Dr. Google, do some breathing, take a break, reassess, essentially. Yes. So I'm, I'm gonna come back to the big question, anxiety. And so the, the title of the book is Unwinding Anxiety. The new science shows how to break cycles of worry and fear and heal your mind. So that's a big promise. And I am curious about the new science. So let's start there. Tell us about the new science with regards to unwinding anxiety. Well, this was prompted somewhat by my own anxiety. So I've certainly talked about having panic attacks, but there, I also, especially starting out in my psychiatric practice, I was struggling helping my patients with their anxiety. And just to give you a sense for the scope of this, medications, which are gold standard treatment for anxiety, there's this term called number needed to treat, which means the number of people you need to give a treatment to before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. That number for medications is 5.15, meaning I get about a 20% hit rate when I play the medication lottery with my patients, right? So that's not very satisfying. 
And so it's like, oh, is this patient going to benefit or not? And then I have to wait because they come back in a couple of weeks or a month later and they're like, that didn't really work. And then we have to start all over. So I started, I was studying, and I think you and I have talked about this before, studying some of our app-based mindfulness training programs. One was for eating. And somebody started mapping out her habit loop where she said, actually, it's anxiety that triggers me to stress eat. Could you create a program for anxiety? And I was thinking, I generally prescribe medications for anxiety, but my research uh, bell was rung a little bit, or you know, my interest was peaked there. And I was like, what does the research have to say about anxiety? And so I went back and looked at the literature, and it turns out, so if you look at the 80s, 70s and 80s, benzodiazepines were prescribed like candy, right? Do you remember the Rolling Stones song, Mother's Little Helper? Of course. Yeah. She goes running to the shelter of Mother's Little Helper. Those are benzos, right? That's how much they were prescribed to the point where the stones were, uh, were singing about them, right? In the 80s, this was also when Prozac was first developed and marketed. So people are thinking medications are going to they're going to do this. 20% hit rate is what we've got with those. At that same time, there were folks like Thomas Borkovec at Penn State who were studying anxiety. And what they suggested was that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And I when I read that, I was just this, had this light bulb moment. I was thinking, I never thought about anxiety as a habit, but I know how to study habits and I know how to develop treatments for habits. So what if we applied these treatments that we've had and we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment for smoking, like 40% reduction in craving related eating. We knew how to do this, even with app-based mindfulness training programs. Could we actually apply this to anxiety? So long story short, and I, I write about a bunch of the science in the book, we developed an app also called Unbinding Anxiety and we studied it, right? First with anxious physicians, ready for this? 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. We did a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder. Ready for this? 67% reduction, okay? So just to give you a sense for that, the number needed to treat, medications, it's 5.15. For this program, for the Unwinding Anxiety app, 1.6. Wow. So I started seeing those results. So you're doing 3X the medication. You're 3X more successful. The, med the medication. Yes, we didn't compare them head to head, right. but if you look at that number, which one would you rather try first? Sure. <laughs> the nice thing about this is, and I prescribe medications, we can, some people will benefit from medications, but everybody benefits from understanding how their mind works. It's treating the symptoms versus treating the root cause. Yes, I would degree. say. Yeah, to some degree, because it basically these SSRIs are basically trying to non-specifically increase serotonin levels in your right. brain. But that's not how our brains work. <laughs> our brains don't work non-specifically. They work very specifically. So what do we get? To me, the numbers are a little bit mind-boggling. Do you think, and I'm glad the book is getting a lot of attention, you're getting a lot of attention. Do you think the quote-unquote Western medical establishment is, is kind of getting the memo here? or in general, look like I'm not anti, like medication saves lives, period. Sure, it does. Sure. Drug, vaccines, and drugs I, save lives. But like those numbers aren't exactly great. So do you think, what's your take on where we are in, in, in 21 and an openness by the establishment, if you will, to embrace your technique or these types of techniques that can be just as effective or more effective than over-the-counter medication? It's a, it's a good question. So just looking at pharma, and I haven't looked in the last year or so, but my understanding is that they have largely divested 
from developing new medications for things like anxiety and, and depression because it's been such a hard road. They've had, they haven't had super great success with it. So there are, I don't know of any anxiety medications that are in the pipeline to be, you know, to, to come out into the world. So that's an indication right there. Yet insurers, if you follow the money, they're always going to look for ways to optimize health and minimize costs. So they're going to be looking for the most uh, effective techniques. And what we've also seen is that the pharma has been talking to the, this whole new brand or this whole new type of treatment, which is called digital therapeutics. A bunch of startups are, are developing app-based training programs to help people with these things. And these may be things that can be prescribed eventually by physicians, but ultimately they have to have some data behind them. So we've just finished our first two, actually we just finished our third study, which also had really good results. So we've furnished, finished our first clinical studies, but when you look just for example with anxiety, there are, it's like 0.5 or 0.5%. It's like a minuscule amount of the digital therapeutics that are out there are actually evidence-based. So if you look at the insurers, they're struggling with which ones do we trust? Which ones do we believe? Because there are a lot of them that look shiny and have all this great marketing behind them. And they say they're science-based, but that doesn't mean that they're actually evidence-based or have any scientific merit to them. So I think it's going to be a few more years, but this is where the industry is going to say, hey, I don't care if it's not a pill, if we can prescribe it, if we can bill for it, if we can reimburse for it, and ultimately if it helps improve health, then we're on board. It just takes a long time for these things, especially for any major shift to happen in the field. Got it. So I'm going to come back to the the why and, and where all this anxiety is coming from. So in the past year, a lot's changed, obviously. It's understatement. And, and there, there are a lot of factors if I'm thinking about anxiety. There's loneliness because of social distancing. There's the fear of the virus. There's the election, you know, the political. The, there's genuine hardship, uh, whether it's economic. There, there's loss. People have lost their lives. Like there, There's a lot for people. Yeah. And I'm curious, what's... It, it, are these all equal in your mind? Is it based on an individual experience? But like, if you were to generalize, what's driving the collective anxiety right now? All the above, or is there one thing that's head and shoulders above the rest? What's your take? Well, all of those have one shared component, which is uncertainty, okay? And our brains, depending on our individual makeup and how much we've kind of gotten caught in a thought stream about one thing or another, it, uncertainty is uncertainty. So for example, if it's the environment and we're really concerned about environmental degradation and all of this, the more we think about that, the more likely we are to get caught up in that and freak out over that uncertainty. If we, if our thing is politics and the more we look at divisiveness or it doesn't matter what, like you're saying, doesn't matter what side of the aisle we're on, the more we get caught up in that and the more polarized we get, the more that uncertainty, you know, is my party going to win? Is my party going to lose this or that as compared to, oh, wait a minute, government is about helping the people. So, so that uncertainty, if it's our own personal economic uncertainty, job loss, if we have a small business and we're not sure it's going to survive or it has failed and we don't know what to do next, it's that. But all of those, it doesn't matter per se what it is. It matters how much we get caught up in it. And all of those share this common feature of uncertainty. So you talked about the relationship between 
fear and anxiety, and, and I understand the relationship with uncertainty. I want to touch on anger for a moment, because if I think of okay. politics, I think of the social issues, the BLM movement, Stop Asian Hate right now, like there's also a lot of anger. So yeah. how, how does anger fit with uncertainty and anxiety? If you're, is it different, same? It's so certainly they're related, right? Yeah. Where we can see how things drive anger. But it, I, one way to look at this at is, and it can be as simple, and I write about this in the book because there may be some evolutionary um, purpose for this. If you look at your eyes, for example, okay? So if you are, if you're angry, are your eyes more likely to be narrowed down or are they gonna be wide open? Narrow. You're, you're, yeah. you're, fo yeah. you're focused, yeah. You are focused, right? So anger is about action, where it says, I don't need to get more information. And when we're angry and somebody says, let me explain this to you, we say, don't, <laughs> I don't wanna hear it because we're already in, we're already being driven to act, which is very different than anxiety, which is driven by, oh no, what's happening? I need to get information, okay? Yet they share this one same quality. My lab actually did a study with this with several hundred people. The quality that they share is they both feel closed down. They both feel wound up, right? So we get wound up, tightened into this tiny ball of anxiety. We also get wound up when we're about to strike somebody because we're so angry. Interesting. So I'm gonna come back to anxiety again. You had a couple of great quotes, you had a lot of great quotes in the book. One of them is anxiety isn't a loner it tends to hang out with friends. So what do we do if we have friends, family members, loved ones who are really anxious? You can't just say, see you later. What do you do in a situation like that? Yeah, there's this, uh, I learned something in medical school, which is when one of my patients is having a heart attack, the first thing I need to do is take my own pulse. And that is a, that's not to say ignore your patient, obviously, but it's to say, hey, make sure you are not freaking out that they are in trouble. Because if I start freaking out, then I'm actually gonna be in trouble and I'm gonna cause more trouble for my team that's trying to help my patient than be able to help them. So I think this also applies here. If there's a family member that is anxious, for example, we can actually, if our brain says, oh, that's unpleasant, we don't want them to suffer, I'm gonna do something. So we often try to do something quickly to make their anxiety go away, which is really about us trying to make ourselves feel better, even subconsciously. I, I learned also a great line in residency, don't just do something, sit there, right? And the idea is, <laughs> I love that. yeah, my job, instead of jumping up and saying, let's fix your anxiety, is to sit there so I can really hear what's happening and even that create, helps to create that therapeutic alliance so that I then can step in and help or even understand where the place might be to start. So I think we can all do that. Don't just do something, sit there. See if our temperature is starting to go up, if we're starting to freak out because somebody else is freaking out and start by keeping ourselves grounded. So it, with regards to you know what to do, so something we covered and it's a bit of a trademark of yours is the BBO. We've, I encourage everyone to listen to our first podcast, but I'd be remiss not to ask for a, a bit of a, a primer on your famous BBO. And, and I'm curious, has it evolved since we first talked about the BBO? 
uh, a year ago, because you know some of those tools may, may not be the, the, the bigger, better offer, if you will, may, probably has changed. Yes. So since we have talked, my lab has done that experiment that I mentioned around looking at several hundred people and, and looking to see do things like we looked at a bunch of mental states to see which states are feel more closed and contracted and which ones feel more open ex and expanded. And one reason that we did that, it, this relates to the BBO, is that our brains are naturally going to move toward things that are more rewarding than others when given a choice between two things. So we wanted to look at mental states to see will people naturally move from one mental state to another if the other one feels better? And is there a basically a universal agreement? We looked across several hundred people, basically anybody that was English speaking. So we limited in that respect, but we really wanted to see is there common language and is there common shared experience? Will people prefer one mental state over another? Now, I'm going to say these, I'm going to give you the results and it probably seems like a no brainer to you because that's how obvious it is when we actually look at this. But of course, we had to do the study to see if it was true. So first off, let's start with something simple like disconnection. When we feel disconnected versus feeling connected, which one feels better? Connected. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Which one feels more open? Connected. Yes. Okay. So how about judging yourself versus being kind to yourself? Being kind to yourself. Yes. Which one feels more open? Being kind to yourself. <laughs> yeah, you know, doesn't it seem like, why are we even having this conversation? It seems like a no-brainer. But we had to actually develop this reward hierarchy to see what was true. And what we found was that universally, these closed states, like frustration, uh, uh, anxiety, anger, they all feel worse and are less desirable than kindness and connection. So the BBOs, I think, I probably talked about curiosity the last time we spoke. I don't know if I talked about kindness. So I would add kindness to that because it is, it, people rank that way, you know, much, very high, just like they rank, they might have even ranked it higher than curiosity. So that's a BBO, a bigger, better offer that I would add to the mix. And basically it's anything that helps us start to move from feeling closed to feeling open. So for example, gratitude practice has been one that's been studied a lot. That opens people up. Kindness, uh, curiosity, all of these things, especially if we can notice times when we are caught in our own habits, for example, of self-judgment. Oh, I'm judging myself. What am I getting from this? I feel closed. I'm beating myself up. Doesn't feel very good. What happens when I compare that to when I'm kind to myself? So it, it, I was going to ask for a real world example, but that is a real world example. I'm judging yes. myself. And what does this feel like? Am I, do I feel open or closed? And actually, the bigger, better offer is being kind to yourself. How does that feel? Is that, yeah. did I butcher That's it? That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Absolutely. Could, could you provide another real world example of the BBO when say, I'm just, look, I'm experiencing some anxiety is coming. I feel it coming yeah. on. Yeah. So let's go back to the eyes here. Okay. When we feel anxious, and you can tell me if this is not the case in your experience, when we feel anxious, it tends to narrow our eyes, just like when we're angry, right? Because, oh, I'm, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling frustrated. So here we can inject a little bit of curiosity. And I, in the book, I write about this brain hack where we can actually open up our eyes really wide. 
when so when we're anxious or when we're angry or frustrated we tend to hold what's called somatic memory which basically says my body posture is going to mimic my emotions and one can trigger the other and support the other so when we're angry and we have our eyes narrowed every time we're angry and our eyes are narrowed that association gets uh, deepened uh, formed more more strongly so what we can do is when we're frustrated or anxious we can open our eyes really wide and see what happens like oh i'm really frustrated and what that does is it our body posture says wait a minute are you sure you're frustrated because your eyes are not suggesting that you're frustrated this is how deeply entrenched this is and it can also start to kickstart a little bit of curiosity like oh what does frustration feel like and it can help us uh, start to move from that closed feeling of frustration into a more open feeling of curiosity. And we can't be closed and open at the same time. So it kind of forces that binary choice and the open feeling feels better. So we're gonna, even as we train this, we're gonna do that more and more. I love it. But do not say, what does frustration feel like to your partner? <laughs> uh, so it's good to say to yourself, but don't say to someone else. It's, uh, yeah. So. It, in closing, uh, a lot going on in the world. What concerns you and what excites you? I think what concerns me is how much just collectively we are getting caught in these kind of these false promises, let's say, of these closed down contracted states. And this didn't just start, you know, this year. Uh, if you look back to the the etiology, I think, if that's the right term for this, of where, well, it may not be the right term. So when happiness actually start be, started becoming associated with excitement, it was around Shakespearean times. So before that, in ancient Greece or whatever, they were talking about eudaimonia, where they were talking about balance and peace and joy as like, that's happiness, let's focus on that. Somewhere around Shakespearean times, things started moving toward excitement, which is this dopaminergic driven quality. So I would say the more we stay asleep at the wheel, so to speak, of our of everything that is driving us toward more closed and contracted states. So division, closed and contracted, right? Feeling like we're at we're we're lacking. So this is consumerism saying, oh, you need to buy this, you need to do this. All of that leads us to feel like we're not enough. That feels closed and contracted. All of these, so all of these things that drive us in that direction. If we are looking toward in that same direction for happiness, we're going to be in trouble as a species and, and we're going to imperil the planet even more. So here, that's my big concern is if we can't wake up to the fact that we're actually driving off a cliff, whatever, whether it's personally or societally or whatever, we won't be able to turn the car around. We'll actually just slam our foot on the gas and go faster thinking, oh, if I can just consume more, if I can just get more, if I can just you know, do more of my dopaminergic things, that's gonna make me happy, where we don't realize that actually doesn't make us happy. That just makes us do more of those same things. That's the piece where I'm hoping that we can start to wake up. And this is also why I wrote this book, helping people see the open quality of kindness and curiosity, those can help us take our foot off the gas, look to see what we're doing and turn the car around. So before I get to what excites you, what, if that do, what does make us happy? Well, the nice thing is these are, we all have the intrinsic capacity to be kind and to be curious. 
and kindness and curiosity are general flavors that I think move us in the direction of this eudaimonic state that these ancient Greeks were talking about, where if you basically open states, anything that opens us up. So when we're in growth mindset and we're learning something, that makes certainly makes me happy. It feels great to be learning something. When I'm feeling connected, like when I'm having a great Skype conversation with somebody, for example, that feels, that makes me happy. I, I get jazzed from that for the rest of the day. I get energy from that. When somebody's kind to me or I practice small act of kindness towards somebody else, that jazzes me. So I look more for the the kindness, curiosity, the things that naturally bring joy that are not driven like I need to go see that sunset, but simply just appreciating the sunset when it's there and not looking for it when it's not. What role does connection play? I think connection plays a huge role. As humans, we are a connected species. And so I think when there's disconnection, it's it signals to us, oh, hey, there's something wrong. Let me go find how I can reconnect or, or deepen my connections. There was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday where it was a great title. Tom Hanks wrote, I'll never play solitaire again. <laughs> oh, that is great. So that concerns you. What excites you? What excites me? is one that we as humans are not ticking time bombs we actually have all the machinery in our brains to be doing more of the kindness more of the connection more of the curiosity bits it's just a matter of waking up to it the other thing that excites me is that how simple this is i talk in the book about simple but not easy so i certainly give a bunch of practices for people to do you we've got to train our brains to see that kindness and curiosity are the bigger, better offers. We can't just tell ourselves to do that. So what I'm most excited about is really seeing and challenging myself and challenging all of us to see how we can help people collectively wake up so that we can just see, oh, it's a no-brainer. Kindness, curiosity, rinse and repeat. So my last question, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we spoke a year ago, here we are, we're going to have to make this an annual event. So we're going to have you back next year. So when we, when we talk again next year, March 22, what do you think we're going to be talking about? Well, there will be a lot of things that we'll be talking about because I think things are changing so rapidly. So just off the top of my head, I would say with regard to the my swim lane or my driving lane is I'm very curious to see how digital therapeutics, for example, uh, really come of age. They've been coming of age. So for example, my, cl my outpatient clinic is now virtual. It will be interesting to see when, probably when, but possibly if my, my hospital in my clinic goes back to in-person and where there will be a blending with the virtual versus the in-person visits. That's just an example, a concrete example of I think this whole healthcare field where I think we've struggled as a society how to be, we're great at spending money on healthcare, we're not great at actually seeing results of that as a country, but I think seeing some of these things as they start to come of age, start to develop. So it'll be fun to see, okay, what does that look like? What do, how many people are still doing virtual health visits? How many folks have integrated and embraced technology where they shunned it before? The other piece here is, how much can we actually start to learn? So my lab is gonna take that next step and say, okay, we've got great efficacy, for example, with this Unwinding Anxiety app. Anybody can use it, we can disseminate it at scale, public health, all this great stuff. 
But I want to also see how can we even make that better? How can we personalize digital therapeutics? So hopefully next year when we talk about this, I might even have some data from my lab that'll be you know kind of late breaking news in terms of those questions that we've been exploring. I love it. We'll book it. We'll book it. Judd, <laughs> always a pleasure. Great to see you. Congrats on the book, Unwinding Anxiety. Guys, pick it up. Always a pleasure, Judd. Thanks. My pleasure. That was really fun. <laughs>